Praise the Lord. It's just great to be with you all again this morning. And there we are. I guess I'm am I on back there. How am I doing? All right. Yes, maybe. Okay, good. I appreciate um, Brother Charles switching places with me. I have a leadership situation I have to deal with in another part of our family, so I've got to slip back home to deal with it before I take off on a trip, so I appreciate you doing that. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. Um, Lord, um, we, 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 could, we could just bask in your mercies. I, I thank you for your presence, Father, that just descended on us, and there's nothing like it. Um, the psalmist said, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Thankful that you allow us to experience eternal pleasures right here on the earth. Your presence and who you are. And I'm asking that you speak to us today, Lord, to help us discern, Jesus, where you are and what's a dark hour for many. Amen. Last night, I, I began a little two-part series, which I entitled, Walking with Jesus in the Dark Hour. Um, what is Jesus doing when it's so dark, when we, we look at ISIS and we look at Russia and we look at Ebola and we look at our own country? talked about four things that we find him doing right now. Getting ready to call out to his bride with a fresh surge of evangelism in the darkness. Shaping what I call the Eutychus generation, the millennial generation. Many have fallen to be, seemingly to spiritual death through the church. What is he going to do as he resurrects them? Talked about that. Talked about um, what happens at the midnight hour when God breaks us out of our prisons. Talked about when the ship of state hits ground, what is God doing as we find our voice? And I want to talk now, last, last talked about part one was the promise of the dark hour. Talk about the pressure of the dark hour. In the dark hour that typically precedes great moments of light, and make no mistake about it, we're being prepared for one. God is forming the facets of our character in that darkness that we will need to cooperate and operate with him when the light comes. Many times it's hard to see what God's doing in your life or the life of a loved one when it's really dark. We know the most extraordinary jewels are basically formed in the darkest places. And it's no different with our character. Now I want to examine this morning and I'll go slowly into it, one of the singular moments in the life of Jesus at Gethsemane, where he demonstrates for us how do we respond to the place of pressure. Jesus never, ever allows a time of intensity to come on us without warning us. Many times we just miss it. And he told his disciples, especially in the book of John, something was coming. He says, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Told him in John 11, 9 and 10, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbled and has no light. He talked about a dark time coming, which they did not realize would be his betrayal, his crucifixion, all that they would go through. Jesus told him in John 12, You're going to have the light for just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he'd finished speaking, he left and hid himself from them. 
Why would he hide himself? He's trying to make a point. You're not going to have me in this form forever. And you better get used to living by me on the inside of you, the light, not on the outside of you. He's preparing them for an intense time. Now, as we come into our story, and he even describes more in Luke 22, 52 to 54, when they come to arrest him, he says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. When it gets really dark, it's hard to see what God is doing with the naked eye. And we begin to feel like, man, all is lost. The devil's winning. Our country's crumpling. But what does God have to say about that? In Matthew 26, 36, it says, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. That means the oil press. That's the place where they took the olive oil and crushed them and released the oil out of them. And God loves you enough, but it says in Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise his own son, to crush him. Now, the pain didn't please him, but what it resulted in did. And God will allow unbelievable pressure into your life and the lives of those you love. And let me tell you, you cannot protect your kids from the giants they were born to kill. As parents, we spend all of our lives protecting our kids from things, then our grandchildren. You cannot protect them from God, and you cannot protect them from their giants. Because without them, they'll never become the adult you want them to be. Jesus is going to Gethsemane now, and so are the disciples. The oil press. The place of pressure. He is now coming into the the darkest, hardest 24 hours of his life. The 40 days in the wilderness was, was terrifying. But this would now be 24 hours that would equal to the pain and pressure of 40 days. How did he respond to that pressure? What did he do? What can we learn from it? Now remember he's coming down from Jerusalem down into the the Mount of Olives. You kind of descend down as as you come down toward where he's going to be in Gethsemane, which is on the foot of the Mount of Olives. And basically he crosses this brook called the Kidron Brook. It's the very same brook that David had to cross when he was fleeing from Absalom. And the word Kidron, interesting enough, means dark or darkness, the dark brook. It's interesting when it talks in the book of Psalms, 110.7, speaking of Jesus, he'll drink from a brook along the way and he'll lift his head high. I want to tell you, no matter how dark it gets, there's always a brook from God. No matter what you're going through. It's like the story there with Hagar being thrown out by Abraham and Sarah, and the little boy, little boy Ishmael's dying. God hears his cry, and he says, Hagar, lift up your head and tend to that boy. When she lifted her head, she saw the well. There's always a well in your hell. It's just a fact. God will always provide for you. Now, what's interesting to this, I'll just lay this out before I get into what I want to say. He gets down, he crosses over this brook. And what you note here, he's in Gethsemane, this immense place of pressure, but he's at the foot of the Mount of Olives where one day, depending on your eschatology, according to Zechariah, he'll come back as king. Typically, your greatest dealings take place at the foundation of the place where one day you'll be exalted. It's always in the shadow of it. It's always something God's going to do. Don't lose sight of that. It's kind of one of those things only in God can he be sweating blood and praying at the foot of where one day he'll be exalted. Wow. Who can figure all that out? Now, what can we learn from this story? What can we learn when we go through times of immense pressure, immense darkness? I think there are a number of lessons, a few of which I want to draw. 
I want to draw, first of all, the lesson of preparation. I want to tell you by the Holy Spirit, typically, seasons of great pressure and testing are preceded by moments of divine preparation. Look what happened with Peter, James, and John. In Luke 9, 28 through 32, Jesus took them up to the mountain. Remember that little story? Mount of Transfiguration. Never forget that mountaintop experiences, how many of you love mountaintop experiences? But never miss their true significance. Every mountaintop is meant to prepare you for something. And typically on top of that mountain, watch this, you are being given the information you need and the revelation you need to pass the test that awaits you. Now typically, Peter, James, and John were kind of basking in their promotion. The nine are at the foot of the mountain. They're being taken to the top. Oh, how happy it is. And of course, what are they doing in this great moment? Kind of half slumbering like they normally are. Now it's easy to miss the significance of what's going to happen here. Jesus is being transfigured, giving them a, a kind of a taste of, I, I'm really God, my Father's with me, but something happens that's so important, and they missed it, and they'd pay for it later. Elijah and Moses came down, remember that? And it said, the Bible says they came down and were encouraging him and preparing him for the things he was going to suffer. They kind of wake up, see Elijah, see Moses, miss a lot of the conversation. Old Peter goes, I know it's lucky I'm here. We'll have a church for Elijah and we'll have a church for Moses and a church for Jesus, of course. He begins, he gets another rebuke. He's the only man in the Bible to be rebuked by every member of the Trinity. <laughs> Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. The Father said, that's my son. Shut up, listen to him. The Holy Spirit said, stop calling that unclean. It's clean. Okay, now. But what was God preparing them for? This was the practice. Some months down the road, years down the road, my chronology is not in front of me, Peter, James, and John would be asked to do what Moses and Elijah were doing on that mountain because when they got to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would turn to them and say, pray for me. And that wasn't a test. That was the real thing. And a lot of times God brings us up on mountains to give us glimpses of what is coming. And you think, man, God just really showed off or God really showed up. Why? He's trying to get your attention. And the mountaintops are really some of the most important times in your life because you are being prepared there for what is coming next in your life. They got dragged up into that mountain, not just to see how great and glorious Jesus was, that was the number one reason, but number two, because one day they'd be called in a dark valley to pray for him and encourage him, just like Moses and Elijah were doing. Don't waste your times of preparation. Then they had that intimate moment. You remember that Last Supper deal? That foot washing thing in John 13. I don't have time to go into it, but that's, a, that's very little to do with feet and a whole lot to do with hearts. So much so that when Peter said, you can't wash my feet, Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. What's that mean? If you don't let me touch the pride that you've been walking in, you're going to walk out of here and lose your moment in the garden and deny me. So Judas missed his moment. Jesus handed that bread to him, looking him in the eye, giving him one last chance to repent. He didn't. Went out, basically betrayed Jesus, hung himself. Peter missed a moment, the deal with his pride, went out and denied. Don't miss your preparation. Don't miss those moments. And honestly, for many of you, this is one of those moments. 
for whatever Brother Charles says and I say, there's a reason for that. Why did God bring you up into this mountain? To prepare you for what is coming or to strengthen you for what you're already in. I used to love mountaintop experiences. I've been a Christian 52 years until I realized you can't stay up there and that God really will test you on what you've heard. He just will. It's the way it works. Don't miss it. Now, the second thing we find, and it's interesting in what Jesus demonstrates here. The second thing I want to say first is don't miss your preparation. Second is you better practice. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Now, the word usual there is very important. That means this was not the first time Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives to pray, or the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, pardon me. It was a practice for him. And what you practice every day, you will do when pressure comes. The fundamental difference in Jesus and the disciples is, they'd been coming to the Garden of Gethsemane and playing and laying around, he'd been coming and praying. Pressure basically reveals that which has become habitual in your life. If you don't learn to hear God when it's easy, you'll never hear him when it's hard. This was his practice. He'd been praying there. It was second nature for him. And pressure, when the squeeze comes on you, it reveals how you've been living your life when there's no pressure. If you have a lifestyle of hearing God and responding to him and worshiping, when pressure comes, that will be your go-to. And that's why don't waste the moments when there are no pressure. Don't waste the moments when it's not hard. I, I think of my godly mom and dad. I mean, they lived in that Bible. My dad in his 70s, he'd just meditate in the Word two or three hours a day, still pastoring the same church. My mom, two or three hours in prayer, worshiping, crying, talking to the Lord. When my children were young, they'd go to the grandparents' house, and they'd have two hours every morning when they'd wake up in bed singing, and they, they were some of the ugliest singers ever put on the earth. They'd sing and worship, only God could love it, weep, read the Bible, the grandchildren in the bed. It was just their life habit. My brother and sister learned to read in the Bible. Read, I had been having devotions since I was eight years old. It was not optional in my home. It's a habit to me. I cannot finish a day without reading the Bible. Why? I've been doing it over 50 years. It's a great habit. Practice is so important because what you practice is what you'll do when pressure comes. The problem with most people is when pressure comes, they're, they're trying to adopt a new habit to cope with it. It's just too hard. When you really need to hear God, it's much harder to learn to hear him. Many of you have lifestyles of hearing and knowing God. That's why when the pressure comes, that's why when the pain comes, you can find him so swiftly. Now, the third thing we find is divine partnership. Now, this is a very interesting verse. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. Now, Peter, James, and John, they weren't the most humble trio in the Bible, to say the least. They're feeling kind of exalted. They'd gone to the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, now kind of the leftover nine got left behind, and they were the big three to go down deep into the heart of God's plan. 
And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Watch this. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, this is so interesting. The one thing Jesus did differently in the 40 days, in the 24 hours is this. In the 24 hours, he did not do it alone. There's one thing we learn from this passage. It's this. If you're under pressure, don't try to negotiate it alone. The three closest people to Jesus were Peter, James, and John. And he took them that day deeper than he'd ever been before. Now watch this. It says, when he began to be sorrowful and troubled, then he said to them. You know, I've pastored people a long time now. I, my first job at a church staff was 20 years old. That's a good long while. You know what my one cry has been after all these decades of pastoral ministry? Why'd you wait so long to tell me? Why'd you wait till you're about divorced to come? Why'd you wait till you're about bankrupt to come? Why'd you wait? The moment Jesus felt this darkness come, he turned to his covenant friends and spoke to them. I recently celebrated my 60th birthday with a handful of my best friends. In the room, I had 40-year relationships of walking in deep accountability and transparency. 40-year, 30-year, 26-year. I think the, the least amount of time I'd known anyone, one of my great spiritual sons, was like 13 years. And I've, I've committed this. I will never, ever walk through war alone. Not just with my wife, but with my covenant brothers. Men I've walked with decades. When that wave of warfare hits me, I'm going to find my Peter. I'm going to find my James. I'm going to find my John. It's amazing to me there's never been so much technology for communication. I, I can't even keep up with it all. We can text. We can email. We can Skype. I mean, we can Snapchat, we can Viber message, yet people are still just as isolated as they were before. Don't go through it alone. That's one of the reasons that we have this conference. Don't have to suffer alone. If Jesus needed Peter, James, and John, fully God and fully man, who do you need? That's one of these principles, though. When crisis comes, you don't have time to develop the relationships you should have been working on for years. I refuse to live life alone. My 40-year friend, Michael Fletcher, pastors a church of thousands, started multiple churches. When we were in our early 20s, we cut covenant to keep each other morally accountable all the days of our life. We still do. And it's one of the reasons we're still living morally. You can't do this alone. What is Jesus demonstrating? If you're going into crisis, if you're going into pain, if you're walking into some hellish situation, don't go alone. I appreciate my wife. We, we've been married working on 36 years, still in love. It's an extraordinary woman. I'm hoping she'll sin sometime to make me feel better. She's like a saint. But you know, the fact of it is, same gender relationships are critical as well. I thank God for just the, the, the 10 or 11 covenant friends I have around the world today. They'd, they'd cross hell for me. They've already proven it. I could tell you stories that would boggle your minds. Don't do this alone. Don't fight this pressure alone. You don't have to. You don't have to do it. Now, 
The next thing we find is this, and this is an interesting thing to me. I want to talk to you about proximity. It's critical that we master the balance necessary to maintain our relationships with both God and people during seasons of painful darkness. Now look at these two verses, and it's so interesting. Going a little farther, Matthew 26, 39, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not I as I will, but as you will. Luke twenty two forty one says, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed. Now, this is interesting. Tom, come up here for a moment. Let me see if I can demonstrate this for you, because if you catch this, it'll help you. So let's say I'm, I'm in a big crisis. Come here, Tom. And, and I, I, I said, Tom, I really need you. I got to talk to you about this. So I take Tom, and he walks his dear friend in, and he says, okay, Tom, you wait here. I've got to go a little farther. Now, well, now what is this? He just told his friends he really needs them. He said, I'm under massive pressure. I'm in great pain. Can't make it without you, but you can't go any farther. I've got to go a little farther. Now, watch this. The Bible says he went a stone's throw away. Bible never, never wastes words. You say, how far is the stone's throw? Well, it depends on how heavy the stone is and how strong your arm is. But why is he being so specific? Jesus walked beyond his friends to be with his father. And a stone's throw away is close enough to your friends so they can see you, pray for you, and know what you're doing, but far away enough from your friends so you can maintain your intimacy with God, and you will not make it without both. And typically when crisis hits people and pain hits people, they either run to their friends and expect their friends to be both friend and God to them, and, or they just run to God and expect God to be both God and friend to them. And the tension comes in the balance between the both. Stone throw. I need Tom's prayer. I need Tom's counsel. I need Tom's advice. I need my brother. But I also need my God. And one or the other will not do. Thank you, Tom. Now, this is so important, how we achieve this balance. So when I'm in crisis and I... I talked about what happened when Robert was so sick at 106 pounds or seven pounds, whatever it was, and I'm there crying and you know, I'm holding him in my lap and my old friend calls and I go, what do I do? He says, Jimmy, he says, I've been praying tongues for you all day. It's one of my covenant, dear covenant friends. And he said, he said, but you just got to put that boy down and go for a walk and pray in tongues. It wasn't enough that my friend knew. He may be able to pray for me, but he can't pray for me. Do you understand the difference? He can pray about me, but he can't do my praying for me. I got a choice. I had my covenant friends praying for me all around the world. My inner, they're all, let Robert live, help Jim, help Kathy. They knew what I was going through. My covenant friends understood we're fighting for Robert's life, but that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for me to bring my friends in. I had to find God afresh. And this is the balance that we, when crisis comes, most people, basically have one stroke. They either try to make it through with God or make it through with their friends, but it's both that gives you the stance and balance to make it. Not if the pain comes, as we're all old enough here for the most part to know when it comes, when the pain comes, when the pressure comes. And these are the things I've learned. So, you know, I have people praying for me. I have six, 700 people that pray for me probably. Then I have a smaller group of just some of the meanest like intercessors you've ever met who I text when I'm doing things. But as wonderful as that is, 
I've got, I can bring my friends in only so far. I've got to go a little farther and get with my father. Now, let's press a little deeper here and watch what happens. So Jesus is now, he's praying. And I will tell you this, let me just talk about prayer for a moment. In the end, if we do not allow our pressure and pain to drive us into prayer, we're in trouble. Pressure is going to change you, make no mistake about it. When relentless demonic pressure comes against you, when pain comes against you, it will deform you or transform you. It will not leave you the same. There's no maintaining neutral. When betrayal comes, when hurt comes, when misunderstanding comes, when pain comes, it will deform or transform. And basically, if you will allow this pressure like Jesus did to push you into prayer, to push you into prayer, you will make it. What happened? What was the difference? Why did Jesus flourish in this pressure and the disciples become faithless? Because they laid and he prayed. I don't know the way to say it. The same pressure that drove him to prayer drove them to sleep. The Bible says they were sleeping for sorrow. Boy, we get under pressure, we want to take a nap. We want, we want to medicate. We want to do something to get away. But if it does not drive you into prayer, I don't know how to pray. That's why you have tongues. I love tongues. I never lack words with tongues. The Bible says when I don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays in me. He just prayed. And he kept begging them. He told his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Typically, when you want to pray the least, you need to do it the most. I'm too tired. I'm too fatigued. I'm too pressured. Prayer is completely different. It's not about being tired. It's about exercising your spirit. Jesus prayed. They laid. They denied. He didn't. And it really comes down to where that pressure drives you, where it pushes you. You can be in such pain, you have no words for it. That's where I just love tongues. Sometimes I can't trust my staff to speak anything but the word. I've got to speak that scripture where there are no answers. I've got to speak that scripture where everything in me wants us to tell God how unfair he is, and I thought I had a different promise, and I'm so mad. Man, that's just human nature. Jesus, I mean, in a darkness we can't understand. Listen, the devil, I doubt the devil's attacked us. Maybe a retired demon from Florida, I don't know. But the devil was really after Jesus. The devil's omnipresent. Why do we give him more power than God? He drove Jesus to prayer, and the angel came and strengthened him. Why did the angel have to come to strengthen Jesus? Because his disciples failed to do it. They failed to see what they should have seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, to pray for him, to stand with him. Pressure's going to drive you somewhere. It'll drive you from him or to him. And the farther you get from him, the more you'll lose your perspective and the madder and more hopeless you'll get. And, this, and it, Jesus, and it, you understand, history was being decided in an hour. You couldn't even pray with me an hour. You couldn't even stand with me an hour. 
Out of words, pray in tongues. Speak the word. Because that pressure was going to produce everything we know to be today in massive revival. Now, let's go a little deeper here. It also helps that you don't just pray, you keep your perspective. Having God's perspective plays a critical role in successfully walking through periods of darkness. Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I mean, Jesus embraced a perspective that Peter resisted. Because in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, thank you, I needed the encouragement. No, get thee behind me. Saying, what's happening here? Jesus embraced this perspective that life is painful, there's suffering, I'm going to face warfare, but it's going to produce life. That perspective, allowing the divine perspective of God to pour down into your soul, to reveal your soul, will keep you when the hard times come. My mom and dad raised me right. This is the cross. This is what it is to be a disciple. It's going to cross your will. This isn't heaven. Don't expect it to be. Life can be hard down here, but it's worth it. Amen. They raised me right. I don't have, I, beloved, I tell you, I appreciate some prosperity is a wonderful thing, but I'd rather have a posterity than I would prosperity. I want to leave disciples. I want to leave sons and daughters. I want to build spiritual family. And I appreciate the fact that God's prospered me. Now, the fact of it is, beloved, Jesus had a perspective from the Father that prepared him. He went on to say, I mean, Matthew 26, 55 through 56, he, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this has taken place to fulfill what the prophet said. Jesus realized what seemed totally out of control to everyone around him was in his Father's control. He's got it, has a purpose, has a plan. Now, this is one of my favorite things. Let me just talk to you for a moment about the power of God. Now, think about this for a moment. No matter how dark it may seem, God's sovereign power is greater than anything we'll ever face. Unfortunately, unless we stay in the spirit, we'll be blind to the reality of his presence because the darkness around us will be so thick. Now, watch the interaction here. And you're going to understand that for the disciples to run and leave him that night was crazy. But the problem is, because they weren't in the spirit, they were blind to what was really happening. The mob comes. Who knows how many there were? The Bible doesn't say temple guards, there would definitely be Roman soldiers at least on the outskirts making sure it was done right. And they're yelling. He sees the mob. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him in John 18, 4-9, went out and asked him, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. Now, the disciples were kind of just waking up. They're the three. They've come together as a group now. 
And the Bible says when Jesus says, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You know what that really means? They were slain in the spirit. When Jesus said, I am he, the whole mob was shattered by the power of God and, and just gone. Wham! Slain in the spirit. Like some of those old conferences where they're just mounds of bodies. Done. I'm he. Pow! In the middle of that darkness, God was in full control, but the disciples were so out of the spirit, they missed what was really happening. And it only gets better. Who is it you want? They're on there. Now, understand, the mob has been slain in the spirit. They're thrown back. They're on the ground. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. Now, who's in command of this whole situation? This old mob is not just kind of come and chain him. They've been slain in the spirit. They're scared to death. The wind of the Holy Spirit has smashed them to the ground. Just as, and by the way, leave all my friends alone. Leave them alone. The disciples honestly had nothing to be afraid of that night. Leave them alone. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now, Matthew 26, 51 through 56 says this. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword out. Why is it that Jesus made sure they had the swords before that just so they could really get in the flesh? Who, can, who really knows? Jesus will reveal your heart. Now, Peter, you think, man, Peter's so brave. He protected Jesus. Brave? These people are laying on the ground, slain in the spirit. Movie don't even show it right. They've been knocked down. So Peter thinks, I'm going to decapitate one of these suckers while they're down there. So he pulls out his sword. He's like, I'm going to save Jesus. Now, Peter can't even get in the flesh well. He pulls out that sword, thinking he's going to have him beheading, misses a prostrate target, and whacks off his ear. And Jesus just thinks to himself. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back, boy. For anyone who takes the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? How did Jesus know that and Peter didn't? Because while they were sleeping, an angel came to Jesus and strengthened him. How did he strengthen him? I got 12 legions here with me, Jesus. Anything you need, we've got this. We're with you. But Peter missed it all. Wasn't praying. Wasn't in the spirit. Jesus said, you got to be kidding me. While you were sleeping, one of the angelic captains came down. There, Roman legions could be up to about 5,000. We just say for the sake of this. There are 60,000 angels here, Peter. And you think I need you, and you can't even cut a man's head off. All you can do is cut the ear off. Peter goes, I cannot believe it. And so Jesus goes, okay. He says, okay, it's all right. He, he, get, he gets the guy. They, they've been slain in the spirit seconds before. So he finds the ear. He goes, okay, wait a minute before you capture me. Get this ear back on. Miracle takes place. Now, how many of you know who's in command of that crowd? He's just done a miracle. He's just seen a crowd shatter. And we know from another passage, he says, and by the way, you couldn't even be capturing me if my dad didn't plan this. You're playing right into his plan. Now, watch this. This is what, so 
But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching you and try it then. Well, but all this, might, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. How do you flee after that? How do you flee when a crowd's just been shattered by the Spirit? How do you flee when he's just told them, leave my friends alone, and they're all afraid? They've just been knocked down by the Spirit. How do you flee when there's just been a miracle? You flee because you can't see in the dark because you don't stay in the Spirit. We run from things we call defeat, never realizing victory comes in the end. Jesus tried to tell them, a time's coming when you can't see. A time's coming when you're going to stumble. A time's coming when you're not going to be able to see in the dark. But if you'll believe me now, you'll become a child of light. What does that mean? There'll be light on the inside of you. In my darkest moments. And trust me, Jesus had one. It wasn't long where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness got so great and he'd invented the plan. He was God. But in my darkest moments, God's with me. But if I don't stay in the spirit, I can't see it. They felt abandoned by God and ran abandoned by God. He'd just slain a mob, a whole mob in the spirit, just done a miracle and just made sure they weren't taken, and they ran anyway. They ran because they could not see what was right in front of them because the darkness was so thick. They ran. Jesus got crucified, brutally whipped, and rose from the dead because the day the devil murdered Jesus, he murdered himself. Resurrection always trumps death. Beloved, it's a dark time. It is. But a thing I've learned in my short life, deep darkness, desperate darkness, precedes delightful, glorious light. It just does. If you're in a place of pressure this morning, you're in a place of pain this morning, and I imagine some of you are, I wouldn't have been led to share this. What do you need to do? Well, don't forget what you've learned on the mountaintops. Keep practicing what you were practicing even when it's easy. Keep praising, keep worshiping. Don't do it alone. If you're in some crisis or place of pain, whether you're here by yourself or here with your spouse, tell someone here. If you don't know someone, approach Jim, approach Tom. Do not leave here alone in your valley. Don't leave here alone battling for a child or a grandchild or for your health or for your business or for your family, whatever it is. Don't. If Jesus, fully God, fully man, reached for Peter, James, and John, who are we not to reach for those men and women God has put in our lives? Who are we? For maintain your balance. Friends alone are not enough. God alone is not enough. Remember that song, you're all I need. Remember that song? Ever sing that? It's hard for me to sing that because I'm not so sure it's true. Because he tells me I need the body. I really do need my wife. I really do need my covenant friends. I know ultimately for my salvation, he's what I need. But I got a desperate need for his people. I got a different need. I got a desperate need for my covenant family and friends. 
Some of you have been really hurt by people it's hard for you to trust. Here's what I've learned. Whenever the enemy really attacks you and a person betrays you, it's not just about losing the person. It's about giving up on the principle that produced the person in the first place. I've been hurt by a pastor. I never want another one. That's exactly what the devil wants. I tried to make disciple, but they left me and hurt me. I don't want another one. So the enemy doesn't just want to take the person from your life. He wants to take the principle that produced the person from your life. You've got to be careful. We need each other. Have I been betrayed by people? Heck yes. Lied to by friends. Betrayed and hurt. But you know what the alternative is to still trusting? Bitter, hard, and alone. I won't live that way. Don't walk through this alone. Man, pray. That pressure, that pain, let it drive you into tongues, drive you into praise, drive you into worship, drive you into his heart. There's nothing like it. There's no replacement for it. And hold on to a divine perspective. God never wastes suffering. God never wastes pain. People ask me all the time, what do I do with my pain, Pastor? Don't waste it. I used to always want to apologize to people for the kind of families they had. So sorry I couldn't have been your dad. I'm so sorry he was an abuser. So sorry he was this. Finally, God said, how dare you? What if that's the family they needed to prepare them for what I called them to do? How dare you? God sees things and perceives things a little differently than we do. And also, don't miss his power in the midst of your pain. Don't miss his power in the midst of your pain. Even when it's so dark, you cannot see he's there. He's there with you. I told you the, the, the motto of one of the military units in Afghanistan was we rule the night. So do we. Because no matter how dark it gets, the light in us, thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. No matter how dark it gets, through his word, through his written word, through his prophetic words to me, through the words of my brothers and sisters, I don't have to stumble. I've got light to walk in. If you say today, Jim, I've been in a place of great pressure. Pray for me. Put your hand up right now and pray. Holy Spirit, help these people. Help these amazing men and women. Touch them by your spirit. Touch them by your presence. Come down and meet with them. Touch them. Breathe on them. I call God on your promises now, and I thank you for them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Jim, I'm going to take a moment and pray for a couple people. Is that okay? I have